Good morning, everyone, and I'll greet you in Jesus' name. And I'll mention that uh, that I requested that song, The Love of God is Greater Far Than Tongue or Pen Can Ever Tell. And I'll tell you just quickly a little story about that song. The, uh, the hymn writer, Frederick Lehman, wrote that song in 1917. So it's been around a while. He was born in 1968 in Germany and moved to the U.S. when he was four with his folks and family. And he lived till 1953 and died in California. He was a Nazarene pastor, and he tried to make some income, extra income, um, well, maybe his main income, by doing some business dealings on the side, which didn't always work out. And one time he was really broke when some deals went wrong, and he was doing manual labor in a uh, packing house in California, packing oranges and lemons into wooden crates. And one Sunday, he was so moved by a sermon on the love of God that he couldn't go to sleep that night. And at work the next day, he stopped every now and then to jot down lyrics on a scrap of paper. And when he got home that evening, he began putting together the melody on his piano. And he had two verses. The first two verses came together pretty quickly. And he wasn't getting anywhere with the third. He wanted a third verse. And then he remembered a poem that someone had given him that was written on a card years before, quite a number of years before. And he had used it as a bookmark. And the poem was said to have been found on the wall of an insane asylum a couple hundred years before. And when the inmate died, some painters came in to repaint the walls, and one of the painters copied down this, this poem, and amazingly, it fit exactly the uh, verses to the song that he had written. And so that's how we get uh, verse 3, could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made, where every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade. To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. Later it was learned that the poem, it seems to be an, a, an adaptation of a stanza from a very long Jewish poem about God's love and faithfulness that was written in Germany in 1096, 800 years before. So that's not all uh, for certainly nailed down, but that's what some scholars have concluded. But uh, Frederick Lehman was very impressed, very moved and touched by the love of God, as I hope we are this morning as well. And the title of this uh, message uh, quickly calls uh, our minds to John 3, and I invite you to turn there, where 
Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, came to Jesus with a question. And uh, he had watched Jesus, he had seen Jesus' miracles, and listened to his teaching, and he had concluded that at the very least, uh, Jesus was a teacher come from God. And Jesus introduced to him the idea that a person needs to be born again in order to enter the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus had more questions, and mostly he listened in Jesus' thoughts. And it was in that conversation with Nicodemus that we read these words, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And that's one of the most loved, most marked, most searched, most memorized, verses in the Bible. There was a preacher from England, Henry Morehouse. He lived in the time of Dwight Moody. And one of his favorite subjects was the love of God. And the first time he came to America, he preached in Dwight Moody's church in Chicago. And in a week, in that week that he, oh, I don't know how long he was there, but in a week's time, he preached seven straight messages on John 3.16. And those messages strongly affected Moody. Up until then, uh, Moody's messages were primarily along the lines of Jonathan Edwards' uh, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, about divine judgment on sinners and not so much about God's love for sinners. And those messages, it is said, uh, moved Moody to the point that he was never again the same. And as we learn to learn to know the love of God, and it is growing within us, uh, it changes us too. So let's read, uh, I'd like to uh, read some verses here to get a little of the context of that verse 16. Let's start with verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He who believes in Him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. So, uh, God so loved the world 
but there is a reference to condemnation and judgment in that passage we read that uh, mentioned in verse 18, that those who don't believe are condemned. And uh, in verse 19, and this is the condemnation. So there is condemnation. And in the last verse of the chapter, uh, he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. But Jesus explained to Nicodemus that God did not come, did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. That's God's primary purpose for sending Jesus, redemption and restoration. And um, different translations handle that verse a little differently, or parts of it. Uh, The literal standard version, uh, that's a relatively new translation, within the past couple of years, I think. It's very strong on the tenses. Uh, For God so loved the world that he gave the only begotten Son, that everyone who is believing in him may not perish, but have continuous life. The New English Translation says, For this is the way God loved the world. He gave His one and only Son. So, the four God so loved can be taken to mean, uh, A, the degree of God's love, uh, that He loved so much or to the extent that He gave His Son, or it can be understood uh, the manner, the way God's love was shown. Uh, like in 1 John 4, 9, In this the love of God was manifested toward us that God sent His Son. And both are true in John three sixteen, The way and how greatly God loved, for God so loved the world. So, uh, let's think about the world, uh, the creation God made. God created the heavens and the earth, and it was very good. Uh, The heavens and the earth is the universe. Uh, In John 3.16, the world is the, the cosmos of men, the whole human race, and we know the history how God created the first man and the woman, innocent, pure, and whole, and set them in a garden that was perfect, and God fellowshiped with them there, perfect fellowship. And so God created the world, and and not, not long, not long, uh, God lost the world. And we know that story, too. God lost the human race. No longer did God have their loyalty and their first love. He was still sovereign. He was still in control, but he didn't have the people, uh, the people's heart. We know how that came about and how sin came and Eden was lost. And there was jealousy and hatred and murder and sin multiplied on the earth. And wickedness was great in the earth, and every every thought and intent of the heart was only evil continually, says in Genesis 6, 5. And um, 
there have been many verses, but um, in John 3, 19, uh, this is the condemnation, we read this, that the, lo- that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds are evil. And they love darkness better than God. And that is the world uh, in for God so loved the world. It wasn't the good world of Eden that Jesus was referring to when he talked to Nicodemus, but the fallen world of the flood in all the centuries since. Selfish, rebellious, broken, sick with sin, and all the ruinous consequences of sin, injustice, suffering, and grief, and pain, and so on. Terrible. And God saw it all unfold. And God so loved and grieved. And the Lord was sorry, it says in Genesis 6, that He made man on the earth. And He was grieved in His heart. And speaking of the children of Israel in Psalm 78, how they provoked God in the wilderness and grieved Him in the desert. And uh, in Luke 19, as Jesus um, drew near the city, he wept over it. God loved, and he was so sorry, not just about how it affected him, but how it affected us, how it affected mankind. And God so loved and bought uh, by sending His Son to provide redemption. So God's love is more than emotion. Uh, it's a motivation to action. God loved, God acted to redeem and to restore, and God so loved that He gave action. And <clears throat> I think it's good for us to uh, think widely sometimes And do we think about what it cost heaven? Uh, Milo referred to that briefly. Jesus is the only begotten Son of God, and God loved Him with a Father's love. In John 3, verse 35, the Father loves the Son. When Jesus was baptized, you are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And similarly, on the, uh, when He was transfigured. And the beloved Son was being sent to the earth. And the loyal angels wondered and watched, very interested in, in the plan and how it would unfold. The Father knew how it would unfold. And He knew how His Son would be treated. Did that bother the Father? I believe it did. We're, we're familiar with uh, the story of Abraham and how God told him to offer Isaac. And it says that um, God told Abraham, Take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go and offer him as a burnt offering. And then in verse 3 it says, So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey, and they went off. That's 
with all the things. So um, what went on between verse 2 and 3, we're not told. But as parents or anybody that, you know, loves children, uh, we can imagine that Abraham had a long and sleepless night. Maybe an anguished heart. What is this about? And can I even do this? Uh, I have wondered already, did Abraham come close to sweating drops of blood? But I wanted us to think about that story because I think it gives us a little image of heaven. Would God not care for his son? At least as much as Abraham did for his or we for ours? Or reflect on Jesus' death. When Jesus hung on the cross and cried, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Was the Father any less distressed than his Son dying on the cross? And I think of this too, that, you know, in heaven there was the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and perfect union and perfect communion. And at the Incarnation, the sent Son left heaven and Mary was with child by the Holy Spirit. And the Incarnation is a great mystery, but uh, with Emmanuel, God with us, there must have been an interruption of the communion of the Trinity as it had been all the eternity before, when Jesus accepted the limitations that Philippians 2 talks about and took on humanity, uh, that affected heaven, not just earth. Uh, God with us affected heaven because Jesus wasn't there. It wasn't the same in heaven. And so, you could say it was a sacrifice of the Father, too. God so loved that He sent, and it was a costly sending. And God so loved and sought, loved this world, loved these, these sinful people. In Luke 15, we have, it's the chapter of lost things that Jesus used to illustrate God's heart and his longing for the lost to be found. Um, first, it's about a lost sheep out on the hills. And, you know, we read that story, we care about the sheep, and we imagine it in trouble out there wandering around and not knowing the way home and then maybe getting stuck. And you've probably seen there are many, many illustrations and paintings, pieces of art of that sheep. And all, frequently he's shown... Uh, caught in the brambles on a small outcropping on the side of a rocky cliff with a apparently bottomless chasm uh, there beside him. And he's helpless. And he can't free himself. And he can't find his way home. And the brave shepherd is leaning over at some risk to himself to uh, rescue the sheep. And he lifts it to his shoulders and carries it home. And there's great joy. And then there's the lost coin. And the coin is unaware 
as we know how coins are. They're unaware that they're lost. They're unfeeling. And that's the condition of many lost people, too. Uh, but the big message uh, about the sheep, I didn't quite finish. The big message is the shepherd. That's the big message of that story, who risked his, his life and uh, to get that sheep. And the big message here about the coin is the woman who valued that coin, even if it had no feeling for her. It was precious to her, and she went to great lengths to search it out. She lit a lamp. She swept the whole house thoroughly until she found it. And she was delighted there was great joy. And then there's the story of the lost son. And we read that story and we watch with alarm as that young son leaves home with his inheritance in hand, headstrong, foolish, independent, selfish, not a lot of self-control. And we can just see a train wreck coming. And we cringe as he wastes his fortune until it's gone. And then when it's gone, his friends are gone. No place, no food, no resources. And we remember how he ended up with a pig farmer who was so hungry that he was, would have willingly eaten the hog food. Maybe he did. And then he remembered home. And reading the story, our hopes rise. But the big message is the father who was often at the gate and gazing longingly down the road and was overjoyed when he saw his son coming back. The father that wouldn't listen to his son, son's offer to just be a servant, but he accepted him as a son, cleaned him up and dressed him, and prepared a feast to celebrate his returning. And there was great joy in the household, save for the elder brother. But these parables not only show the helplessly lost condition of man, but the love of God for the lost. Uh, Zacchaeus' story uh, is a, uh, a lost sheep in real life there. And uh, he was a wealthy man, and he was a selfish little guy. He was a rascal. And he was despised by his countrymen, many of them. And the people said, he's a sinner. And they were right, he was a sinner. And one day he climbed the tree by the road, hoping to get a closer look at Jesus when he passed. And I imagine he was surprised when Jesus stopped and looked up at him. His eyes, Jesus' eyes were kind. Zacchaeus, hurry down. I'm coming to your house. And his voice was kind. Jesus loved Zacchaeus. Jesus was pursuing Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus responded and showed the fruits of repentance. And, and uh, he was lost no more. He was found. Today, as salvation comes to this house, Jesus said, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. So God so loved 
and he restored. He grieved. He uh, sought. He sat. He sought. He restored. And in Isaiah 61, and Jesus quoted from this in Nazareth, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord, Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. And he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And that's where Luke stops. Maybe Jesus read more. But uh, it talks about consolation for those who mourn and beauty for ashes and all of joy oil of joy for mourning and the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness and so on. And rebuilding old ruins. The Jews of Nazareth, when Jesus said, today this is fulfilled, you know, I am, I am the, the person, I am uh, the fulfillment of this prophecy I am what fulfills that God so loved the world that he sent his son to redeem and rebuild. The Jews of Nazareth were offended. And they pushed him outside and up the hill to the top of the hill with intentions to shove him off, hopefully to his death. Their intent. But if you would ask some of the people whose lives Jesus touched, Like the father seeking help for his son who cried out, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. That father would have understood that passage from Isaiah when Jesus read it. Or the woman caught in adultery, to whom Jesus was merciful and said, go and sin no more. Or the woman at the well, or the gathering demoniac, or the woman who washed Jesus' feet with her tears and dried them with her hair, and, and many, many more. They, they would have understood what that passage was about because they experienced that healing and that liberty and the oil of joy for mourning and beauty for ashes. And they loved God. Remember that lady that washed Jesus' feet with her tears and dried them with her hair? And um, Simon, whose house Jesus was at when that happened, uh, who was kind of critical of Jesus, Jesus told him a little story. He said there was a certain creditor who had two debtors, and one owed 500 denarii and another 50. And when they weren't able to repay, uh, the, uh, the creditor forgave them. And so... Um, Jesus asked, which of them would love him the most? And Simon said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more, the most. And Jesus said, you're right. And the point he was making was, the better that we understand our sin and our need and what God has done for us as Christians, the more we love God. 
do we appreciate God so loved the world that God so loved me so much that he gave his only begotten son? Yesterday, someone sent me a very short summary of the history of Christianity and how it changed over the centuries, according to this person. Uh, not the person who sent it to me. Christian, listen close. See if you agree. Christianity started in Palestine as a fellowship. It moved to Greece and became a philosophy. It moved to Italy and became an institution. It moved to Europe and became a culture. It came to America and became an enterprise. Well, that's obviously terribly uh, simplified, oversimplified, and in very general and broad strokes. But there's some truth there, too. And when you think of enterprise, Christianity being an enterprise, uh, maybe maybe the person was just talking about the commercialization of church, big mega churches and big dollars and all that. But enterprise is a business and is about transactions and decisions being made uh, on the basis of profits and losses and how does it benefit me and so forth. Um, so is that what Western Christianity looks like? How does it profit me? Is becoming a Christian uh, mostly a transaction? I'll obey God so I can get to heaven. I'll do this so I can get this benefit from God. Is it just a business relationship that we have with God? In Ephesians, uh, we, we don't have time to look at all of this, but uh, in, in chapter 3, in Paul's prayer, uh, for this reason I bow my knees, in verse 17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints, what is the width and length and depth and height? To know the love of God, which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So those verses impress us that God's love is vast. It is vast, tremendously vast, beyond understanding. But it's also a prayer that God's people would comprehend and experience that kind of relationship. And um, I don't think Milo said that it will be better in heaven. I think our understanding will be much better too. But God wants us to learn here, to be learning here and to be growing in our understanding of God's love. And it's, it's talking about an experience, uh, a, a relationship. Or do we just look at that, read across it, and I have brushed over that 
we can read it like a soaring aspirational target that is little more than wishful thinking. But when you get down to practical everyday life, it just doesn't really, it's not, it's not possible. But that is God's desire. And is what I have been impressed with and impressed with. And I think it links to the, to the last couple of verses. Now to him who is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. And it, it needs to be a work of God. And it is a long, long process. And we will never hear uh, get to the bottom of the bottom of it. Just like if you had all the pens and quills and oceans of ink, you'd never describe God's love. So that was written to the Ephesians. And I wondered, uh, what was it like for the Ephesians? You know, there's a letter written to the Ephesians in Revelation also. And there it said uh, there was a warning. I have this against you, that you have left your first love. So, um, was Paul's prayer effective for the Ephesians? Did their Christianity become an enterprise, a transaction? Somehow the relationship grew weaker. They lost something. Their what are the hindrances to a deeper fellowship with God, to really knowing God's love? Um, one is the love of self, just being unsurrendered. Whoever believes, John 3.16, that person is a true disciple, a true follower. It's not just a mental assent. Uh, verse 21, and he who does the truth comes to the light. That's what we are believing. So the, a lack of surrender is uh, one problem. A love of the world instead of a love for God. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, not all of the world is sin. A lot of it is. But uh, loving the world, the things of the world, is a problem. It dilutes our focus. It distracts our attention. And then there's the cares of life, the parables of the soils, you know. Um, the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, choke the word, and he becomes unfruitful, Jesus explained about the parable of the soils. And so how do we grow in our love and fellowship with God? Um, I think one key that we've already touched on this morning is prayer. Paul prayed. He prayed sincerely and earnestly. We can pray that prayer. We can borrow that prayer. 
And if we need it, God hears it. And Jesus said in the uh, Ask, Seek, and Knock passage in Luke 11 that how much more will your Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? And when the Holy Spirit comes upon us, when He has freedom to reign and live in our hearts, the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has given who was given to us. So we can pray for the Holy Spirit and pray that God will work in our hearts, that God will show us hindrances to our relationship with Him and to help us deal with them. Then, of course, our devotional time and and being responsive, the surrender, the obedience, and repentance, and responding to to God and His Spirit. You know, uh, we uh, we can be always looking for the perfect formula that will, you know, if we just do this formula. X plus Y equals Z times this and whatever. If we do the perfect formula, we'll reach it. But, you know, it, it really, I think, mostly comes down to some basics, some basic things that we already pretty much know, but just have a little trouble getting it done. That's me. And may God help us. God loves us with a great love. He so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. And that's the story of Christmas and should be the story of uh, Christian's life in responding to that love. May God bless